father was a member of the Society of Jesus, which is commonly referred to most people as saying the Jesuit. But the true name of his congregation is Society of Jesus. Do you know the father is at SLU? He's an associate professor of historical theology at St. Louis University, director of Catholic Studies Center there, and basically also in part of theological studies. Father has an immense background. When I asked for a few tips and points of what I might be able to share with you, unfortunately it was 11 pages long on both sides, and um, single-spaced, and I knew that you could just, you know, say, oh my goodness. The beauty of it all is that Father's considerations for us today seem, in my estimation, to wrap up this entire three years all 27 times, this is your 27 time of being here. Because Father is going to speak about, you say you're not graduating, you're not getting a certificate, you are being commissioned into living the reality of your baptismal vocation. And you will definitely find yourself more rooted in that reality and more aware uh, because of what Father will share with you today. Father has studied extensively the rights and writings of the wonderful St. Augustine of Hippo. If you have any acquaintance with him, I'm sure we'll have some experience today of hearing from St. Augustine. Father's on the faculty uh, at Kennec, our own seminary here, but also several other universities. Just um, things more along your line of contact, uh, Bishop Barron's Word on Fire, invited Father to do seven 20-minute videos, which are there to be found. And basically, it's just for me the very deepest pleasure to say the Holy Spirit is with us, and Father is certainly his instrument, and we thank him for being with us. After that, I can only disappoint. Thank you, sister. I know we just said morning prayer, but let's just invoke the Holy Spirit. Spirit of truth, wisdom, spirit of beauty, spirit of purity, spirit of love. Descend into these sons and daughters of the Father. Reignite in them a passion to bring Christ's love into the world to be temples of your own presence as they live out their baptismal call to become saints in this life, the life that you have arranged for each of them this day. For we gather in the name of the Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. St. Augustine did live uh, 354 to 430. And when he became bishop of this little town, Hippo, in North Africa, 395, one of the first things he did was to write a book uh, on how to teach catechists. And it's called De Catechizandis Rudibus, on catechizing the, the rubes, I guess we would say, the, the raw people. Latin, for those who don't know much. That's not you. This is the book for you. And there's a line in here that I've always cherished. Every catechist, before all else, should let people know that Christ came so that we might learn how much God loves us and might learn this so that we would catch fire with love for him who first loved us. And so, 
part of loving is knowing, right? You can't really love until you know. You can have uh, a crush, you can have an emotional high, or you can have hatred and stereotyping, but you can't really love until you know. And so Saturdays like this are really important. And in one way, they probably wouldn't have happened 50 years ago. This gathering today is a sign of Vatican II, the universal call to holiness, that all of us are called to sanctity, not just we who, you know, dress funny. Um, And I want to say that you have actually more authority in this world than we. And this came to me one day, I tell this story, (coughs) walking across the campus at SLU, a young man asked me a, a fairly sensitive moral question, and I told him what I thought was true. He didn't want to hear it. And he said to me as he left, he said, well, you only say that because you work for the Vatican. Okay? Um, But notice what he did. He figured I had to toe the party line. He figured I had to tell him what the church taught, as if I were on commission for every confession or something, right? When you say what's true, I think people listen in a different way because you have a lived credibility amongst them. They've seen you mow your lawns and go to soccer and raise your kids and shop at the grocery store, the stuff where they don't usually see us in the real world. And when you know the faith, when you're able to communicate it in your own way, it doesn't need to be a lecture, it doesn't need to be a PowerPoint, but just anytime you say to someone, how could I pray for you? Or, man, I just went to confession, it feels so good. Or, when was the last time you got to Mass? I see you guys, your car never moves on Sunday morning. What's going on? You know? They listen because you have an authority in their circles that we don't, I think. And so, thank you for taking your call to know and to love seriously. That you are those branches in the world of Christ's own vine. And so, we gather today to look at three different areas of our Christian discipleship. I titled today, Divine Union the goal of the Christian life. And I wanted to emphasize this point in each of the talks because I want you to imagine, and as you leave this series, as you leave this day, to imagine the aim and the goal of Christianity of becoming another Christ, becoming one with Christ in such a way that you actually start to live out His attributes. When I was younger, I think the preposition that I would think of about Jesus was two. Remember when you were little, you do things to him, maybe for him, right? You kind of imagine Jesus out there, hey, look at me, I'm not beating up my brother, aren't I good, right? You get a little older, I think the preposition becomes with. We start to understand that we need grace. And so, Jesus, I need you with me here. What if you left today and lived the rest of your life as Jesus would, or as Mary would? What if you went home and treated everyone in that house as Our Lady would? or as Christ would. This isn't far off. This is precisely the goal of our Christian life, to become Christ-like, to become Christ. You sometimes hear that (coughs) allergy season's great, isn't it? I woke up with stuff in my eye I did not know. You hear that phrase sometimes, alter Christus, uh, another Christ in Latin. And Unfortunately, today we use it only for priests, but it originally appeared in a Roman baptismal formula that when we baptize a child, we baptize him or her as another Christ. This is now the image of God on earth. This is now the living icon of the Father, this child. And that's what we're all called to. Divine union 
is something that we started to lose in the history of our theology at the Reformation. At the Reformation, when Protestants and Catholics became divided, what became really important were the rules, expressions of ethical conduct. And of course, the rules are important, right? But unless we're going to be Pharisees, unless we're going to be the scribes who do everything perfunctory and perfectly, we need first that consecration from which those actions come. Because we can do a lot of good things externally for the wrong reasons, right? We can look like really solid Christians, but inside we have no relationship, no intimacy with the Lord, no familiarity with how the Lord speaks to us. And that's the kind of thing I hope we can keep talking about. Because like any person, God desires to be known. Like any person, God has a certain set of likes and dislikes. He has a particular way that he enjoys being engaged. He has a personality that you come to know more and more as you spend time with him. And then you hear his voice a little more sensitively, a little more intimately throughout the day. And that's the gift of discernment, being able to set God's voice here and the other voices here, knowing what is ultimately true. Divine Union is captured for me in a story that really did change my life. It literally changed my life because I moved um, from classics into theology. But when I was in seminary in Austria, I got sent to the University of Innsbruck. And the only fellow left in my vow class was up in Scotland for the summer. So I went to visit Bernie. And he had an appointment that day. So I went took the train up to Fife, where St. Andrews University is. If you golf, you probably know about St. Andrews. I just wanted to see it. Never been up there. And I was in traditional Jesuit garb, um, shorts and an Adidas t-shirt. And a lady approached me, and I could kind of tell what she wanted. I'd been in the game long enough. And she said, excuse me, she said, do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? And I said, you know, I said, I do, but I don't really want one. And her mouth dropped. She said, you don't want one? I said, well, I said, think of it. Relationship means side to side. Where are your lats, right? Latus in Latin means side. I said, I don't want Jesus off to the side. I don't want just him with me. I said, I want him in me. I want the way that he would speak to people to be the way I speak to people. I want his look of love to be how my eyes work. His embrace of justice and whatnot to be how my body works and so on. And in good evangelical fashion, she says, well, that's not in Scripture. <laughs> and I quoted to her Galatians 2, 19 to 20, where Paul says, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And I really think that's an important line. I didn't put it, I don't think I put it in the, the slideshow. Galatians 2, 19-20, Paul says, look, through the law, I've been crucified to the law. The law is no longer going to save our souls. And that's kind of a, a mental shift for most of us. We are not saved by what we do or don't do. The Pharisees and scribes would be ahead of us in the kingdom of God if that were the fact, if that were true. We are saved by not what we do or don't do. We're saved by who we become. And you and I, who are made in God's image and likeness, have it stamped into our eternal souls to become like God. And so this notion of divine union is really essential. Anyways, this lady and I, we parted company after talking for a while. I went back to the Jesuit house and I started playing around with the word deification, becoming like God. And I found it all over Augustine. I said, that's where I'm... So I, anyways, I ended up doing my PhD in theology. So that lady did really help me. And I imagine all of us have a story where a street preacher or someone at our door, you know, they can be irritants, Right? We used to have like an eight-foot statue of Mary so the Jehovah Witnesses would leave us alone back in Michigan. But 
I mean, those opportunities in the history of the church, too. Whenever a heretic arises, the church gets to purify her teaching a little bit more. And so, anyway, I wanted to introduce you to some great authors on this topic. And the first is Columba Marmion. Um, you see the word dom there. That's short for dominus. Benedictines, they call themselves lords. You think Jesuits are haughty. You should hang out with Dominicans for a while. Or, well, those two, but Benedictines. Our Lord is master of his gifts, and without any merit on their part, he calls certain souls to more intimate union with him, to share his sorrows and sufferings for the glory of his Father and the salvation of souls. I fill up those things which are wanting of the sufferings of Christ in my flesh for his body, which is the church. Okay, Paul, Colossians 1.24. We are the body of Christ in members of his. Members. God could have saved men and women without them having to suffer or to merit, as he does in the case of little children who die after baptism. But by a decree of his adorable wisdom, he had decided that the world's salvation should depend upon an expiation of which his son Jesus should undergo the greater part, but in which his members should be associated. So notice what this Marmion saints, an early 20th century uh, Benedictine monk, he's saying that, look, first off, without any merit on our part. We read in the psalm today, this morning, that all is grace, that grace abounds. And this is really, I think, the first thing we have to think about if we're going to be properly formed Christians. Everything is gift. One of my great Jesuit heroes, Father Leo Sweeney, once gave me a penance in college to meditate on John 15, 5. Without me, you can do nothing. And when I finally believed that, my penance was over. That was 35 years ago, and I think that penance is still going on. Without me, you can do nothing. So here's a story. When I was five, my, my dad died. And <clears throat> when it came to Mother's Day, I would have to ask Mom for money to get her a gift. Sounds odd, but, you know, you're five, income's low. <laughs> She'd give us $5, there were eight of us. We'd always get a $5 bill. We'd go down to the Ben Franklin store. Yeah, you have those here? We, this is Pawpaw, Michigan, by the way, a little town in western Michigan. Um, very cold all the time. Papa, the town's so nice, we named it twice. That's what it says. <laughs> but I'd always get mom something like a uh, bubble bath or, you know, something girls need, right? And wrap it up when I got home and on Mother's Day give it to her. And she'd open it and she'd always be so gracious. This is the best thing. I've always wanted this. Oh, how'd you know? And it was such a good feeling. Um, and I thought one day, I thought, this is how life works. Everything that you and I have, the fact that we exist, the fact that we have been conceived by these two people that no one else could have done, and then all the blessings, all the gifts of all these decades, everything is gift. Just like my mom gave me everything for that present, and I gave it back to her, after 80, 90, 100 years, you and I will say to our Father, here's what I give you. This life, this experience, these people, this career, this community, These converts, this is what I offer you, Father. I know you gave me everything, but then you gave me 80, 90 years to wrap it up in my own unique, particular way. And we trust that when we die, the Father says, you know, welcome home, my good and faithful servant. He'll be very pleased with the gifts that you give him. But that's how everything is gift. When my mom died, um, we found 90 years of bath stuff in the side closet, so... (laughs) One day, my secretary of theology at SLU was having a tough time, and um, I was in the coffee shop at Caldy's at Laclede and Vandevent are there, and I saw her, and I said to the guy, I said, hey, give me a gift card. 
And I went out and I gave her a gift card thinking she was going to come into the coffee shop. She didn't. But later that week, she called and said, hey, look, I've been really struggling with something. I said, I know, I can tell. She said, can we talk? I said, sure. I go, why don't we have coffee? So we went to the Caldi's coffee shop, and I said, she goes, oh, no, I'll get it. And she pulled out the gift card I gave her. And I thought to myself, who's buying this coffee, really? Well, we both are, right? I gave her the means by which she was able to do with whatever she wanted. And that's what grace and merit are in our Catholic faith. That God gives you everything, and if you use that everything well, you accrue merit. I mean, it sounds like points, I know. But what merit means is, think of the word merchandise. You're spending your energies, you're spending your life on all the right stuff. And ultimately, that right stuff is to grow in union with Christ. That's, at the end of the day, all that matters. Again, the Catholic argument is, I can do a lot of good things externally, all these actions, but if I don't have that intimate relationship with Christ, they're of no avail. Jesus says often, doesn't he? Whoever says, Lord, Lord, right? I don't know you. Why don't you know me? Look at all the things I did. I called down thunder. I did miracles. Jesus says, no. You didn't do it for me. You didn't do it out of me. You didn't do it as me. You did it because you had all these gifts that you used on the natural level that ultimately don't accrue to your merit, to the salvation of your soul. So, what does union mean? Another word, obviously, is love. Those of you who have relationships like this, I hope it's your marriage, maybe it's your best friend, but you know what it means to love another, is to become like that person, right? And good catechists know that all of the Christian truths that sometimes can seem a little lofty, all the Christian truths that can seem a little abstract, everything we teach ultimately has to do about love. If you want to know how Christianity works, think of your heart on the best of days, right? On the best of days, you are merciful, joyful, you're integrated, you're transparent. You, you don't mind being around those who uh, bother you or who are sick or who are cumbersome, that you love to be in the presence And so, we Christians, and I think this is really important, and I don't mean any disrespect, but we Christians are the only ones who call God love. You will not find God as love in the Old Testament. You will not find love as one of the 99 names of Allah. Love is ultimately Christian. Why? Because we are the only ones who understand that God is love because we are the only ones who know God is a trinity. You can't have love with only one thing, right? You get up in the morning and give yourself one of those awkward hugs and say, oh, I love you, right? Of course not. St. Augustine says, wherever you see love, you see a trinity. That wherever there's love, there's always a lover. There's the beloved who receives that love and then the love who unites them. And that's who our God is. The trinity isn't that abstract. It's a community of love. Three persons so totally in love with each other that they are wholly dependent and reliant upon the other. Now, I want us to think about this for a second, because this, I can still remember when I sat, I went to Marquette University in Milwaukee, and I remember the day that Father Teske was teaching us on the Trinity. Roland Teske, very German, very straight, very good lecturer. I once made him laugh in class, he literally went like this. (laughs) Sister says there are 150 people here today. Okay, let's say there are 150 people in this room. How many humans are in this room? 150, right. You and I have our own humanity. We're a lot alike, but we're not ultimately totally reliant upon each other. We all came here in separate cars, probably, right? We'll all go to our own homes afterwards. But yet, you and I are similar, but not totally one. We share the same species, right? 
homo rational, the rational human. So, let's think about God. How many gods are there? How many divine persons? Three. See the difference? Those persons of the Trinity don't have their own godliness. They're not like little pie pieces, little three, you know, triangles like in risk or something. That's how I used to think of God, that the Father could just pull away and the Son. No. They don't have their own divinity the way you and I have our own humanity. There's only one divine nature. That's what makes us monotheists. That was the great gift of the world from the Jews. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. And so, think of it. The Father is the Father. The first person of the Trinity is who he is only because he has a what? A son. Now, those of you who have sons and daughters, did you change after you conceived? Sure. But not totally. People are like, oh my God, who are you again? Right? I mean, you change. You got gray and probably got a tick and insurance rates went up and all that stuff, right? But you're not wholly dependent upon your children to be who you are. Right? You have an identity before you were mom or dad. We all have identities before we are teacher, professor, mechanic, engineer, whatever. One of the few titles that you and I are eternally dependent upon is son or daughter, right? There's never a time in which we aren't son or daughter, the moment we're conceived. And so that gives you a little bit of an inkling into the divine nature. But I want us to think about the father is 100% dependent upon the son to be who he is, is the first person of the Trinity. The second person, he's the son, he's the begotten one. He's God from God, light from light, true God from true God, right? He is wholly dependent upon the father to be who he is as a person, a divine person, and the Holy Trinity, the Holy Spirit in between. I say this because Jesus tells us to be perfect as my Heavenly Father is perfect. And I imagine most of us, especially in America, especially we fallen men, tend to think of perfection in terms of autonomy, independence. The better I become at something, the less I become needy on uh, a teacher or a trainer. The wealthier I become, the less I need assistance financially and so on. But what if Jesus Christ isn't of this world? That's what the Jews are learning in the Gospel of John this week, yeah? We thought we knew where he was from, come on. He doesn't think like we do. Maybe when he says, be perfect as my Heavenly Father is perfect, he's saying, become more vulnerable. Become more dependent upon one another. Admit your need for community. Admit the fact that love can't be self-contained that it's in your very nature to go out and make yourself gift. Hmm? This is, I think, really, what would I say, an inversion of our values. That becoming, what would I say, needy, becoming intimate, becoming vulnerable, becoming tender before another isn't a weakness, it's actually a divine attribute. That's who God is. How many of us use the phrase, I love you, sometimes a little too easily? You ever do? You ever find yourself doing that? I love you, right? Said it to the lady at Schnooks this morning. Thanks, love you. <laughs> but what if, what if you were to say to someone, you know what, I not only love you, I, I need you. I need you to be the best person I can be. I need you to, you know. That's not a weakness. The Father eternally says to the Son, I need you. I wouldn't have an identity. I couldn't be called Father. I couldn't be the begetor if it weren't for you. My entire identity is you. And this is who you and I are made in the image and likeness of. A triune God. Three persons so holy, pure, and 
loving that they are dependent on each other. So the first quote I gave you here is from 1 John. Sorry, it looks like a Seahawks uniform. <laughs> See what love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we may be called children of God. Yet so we are. And the reason the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Most people think of God in terms of power and might. <coughs> and that's not wrong, right? But ultimately, God isn't power and might. God is hmm, weakness. God is vulnerability, the ability to be wounded. This is who our God is. Anybody, any pagan, any pre-Christian had an idea of God as thunder and lightning and power. But we Christians are called into another kind of image of God. We're called into an image of God that is triune, that is wholly dependent, wholly reliant upon other persons. And maybe just like your relationship with your spouse one day, you looked at each other and said, you know, it's good. We got a good home. We got a good marriage. Let's bring about other people. Let's make others. And so you had children. And it's not that different with our father. He looked at the son. The son looked at him and the Holy Spirit. And they said, this is good. It's good that we can know each other and be known by each other. Let's create other people like us. And so for five days, God got the nursery ready, right? He created this earth. He painted it. You know, he got the mobile. Mobile? Mobile? I don't know. I have no kids. Um, And he said, let us make man. Now, Jews and Muslims have a really hard time with that first-person plural verb, right? Let us. They think God's talking to the angels. But we Christians know that God is speaking within himself. Let us make man, Adam, in our image, after our likeness. So God created man. And there the Hebrew word for man changes to his and woman, hisa. In his image, in the divine image and likeness, he created them. Now, two things are important here. First, you and I are the only creatures in Genesis that are made in God's image and likeness. You and I are the only creatures that are made for relationship. You and I are the only creatures that have this divine stamp imprinted into our souls. Something else happens with us that doesn't happen with the other creatures. All the other creatures are created in pairs. You and I come ultimately from one man, this Adam. And Adam, at the beginning of creation, he had all the right parts. But notice the Hebrew word change. He didn't know he was a man until there was a woman there. As if to say, look, you and I are incomplete without each other. And this doesn't have to be just marriage. This can be friendship. This can be any kind of relationship in which we discover who we are by means of the other. The old Delphic oracle. So in, in, in 5th, 4th, 3rd century Greece, there was a priestess at this oracle in Delphi, right? And if you really had a, a big decision to make, you would make pilgrimage to her and ask her advice. And she kind of would speak like modern-day fortunes, you know, fortune tellers. You ever read your horoscope? Don't. But if you were, I mean, they're so generalized, right? Today will be a surprise, and you will react, right? She would say this. Somebody, uh, there's a famous story, a general going, said, should I go to war with um, with the Persians? She says, if you do, a great nation will be lost. Well, you know, should I do it or not, right? But above this Delphic Oracle temple, there were three main sayings. Nothing in excess. You probably all heard that, right? Nothing in excess. Know thyself. And thirdly, commitment brings agony. 
Now think how the, think how the Greeks were thinking. The world in which Christ is born. Right? Nothing in excess. Okay, that, that seems right. But what about charity? What about mercy? You know, the stoic kind of Greek mind, always walking the middle path. Know thyself. Well, how do you know yourself? We humans, at least we Christians, argue that you can't know yourself apart from the other. And that's why the Greeks would say, no, commitment brings agony. Stay a little distant. Don't get too committed. Don't be too vulnerable. You know, their god, their great hero is Achilles. Achilles, who had no commitment to anyone. Achilles, who could kill on a whim. Our great heroes are Maximilian Kolbe, John Amola, John Paul II. These people who spent their lives not distancing themselves, but literally pouring their own selves out for others. It's a very different way of understanding who we are and what life is about. Okay? But in the beginning, we are made in God's image and likeness. And as catechists, as lay formators, <coughs> this is essential in evangelization. Why? Because the Christian argument, the Jewish argument, is that you and I are made for God. That God isn't something extra. That holiness isn't something that is outside our nature. That sanctity is not something that's going to ruin who we are or destroy my individuality. It's, in fact, going to perfect me. Because I'm made in God's image and likeness. So when I become more and more godly, I'm becoming who I am. Think of your own experience. When you do something good, don't you feel alive? You don't mind looking up. You don't mind people finding out what you've been doing. But when we sin, we tend to look down. We tend not to let people know. We tend to foster sins in the privacy of our own rooms. And there are, I think, arguments there that we're made for holiness. So when we act holy, we become fully alive. When we are sinning, we feel less than who we are. That's why we call sin the fall. It doesn't, take, it doesn't add anything to us. It takes away the dignity and the glory we're supposed to have. And so remember this. That being made in God's image and likeness means that the more we grow like God, the more we become truly ourselves. Okay? Vatican II took this line and spun it this way. We think this was written by John Paul II. This likeness, divine image and likeness, reveals that the human person, who is the only creature on earth which God willed for him or herself, cannot fully find him or herself except through a sincere gift of self. Wow. This was the most quoted line of John Paul II's pontificate from Vatican II, right? Think of this. Two things. First, you and I are the only creatures God willed for ourselves. And that, again, makes sense, right? Think of how your own heart works. How many of us would have enjoyed the day that mom and dad came to our room on our 16th birthday? Uh, Honey, can I talk to you? Listen, the reason mom and I had you is so you would start mowing the lawn and uh, emptying the dishwasher, right? There was a couple not long ago who admitted conceiving, I think in Finland, a child in order to harvest her organs for their firstborn. The government stepped in, but it was a huge lawsuit. How would you like to be that kid? Reading the paper, Mom, was that me? What? Why'd you have me? For the sake of my kidneys? I mean, how degrading, how inhumane. And so Vatican II says, look, everything else on this earth is created for the sake of us. And here's a little insight into Catholic theology, even angels. You read Psalm 8 this morning. What is man that you should be mindful of him, but yet you made us just a little bit less than a God? Right? That isn't heresy. It's not new age. We're called to become gods. We're called to become one with our Father. Right? 
Even the angels exist to serve us. That's what angel means. You can see the word evangelization. You can see the word angel in there. It means to, to bring good news. It means to be messengers of God. Messengers to whom? To us. Right? There's all that great art of angels bowing to Our Lady. I mean, you and I are the ultimate creature. Right? Now, notice, because that's true, we become fully ourselves only by making ourselves gift. By pouring ourselves out. And in one way, that's what you're doing right now. Giving up a Saturday to grow in the faith. But every time that you and I offer charity, truth, mercy, every time you and I seek to help, when you and I begin to see Christ in his brothers and sisters, we are making ourselves gift. All right? So that's another way of saying divine union. All right? That's another way of saying that we're made to become like Christ who pours himself out. All right? We all know who that is? C.S. Lewis, right? Do you know what those words, our Father, mean? They mean, quite frankly, that you are putting yourself in the place of a son or daughter of God. To put it bluntly, you are dressing up as Christ. If you like, you are pretending, because, of course, the moment you realize what the words mean, you realize that you're not a son or daughter of God. So that, in a way, this dressing up as Christ is a piece of outrageous cheek. But the odd thing is that he's ordered us to do it. The one prayer that Jesus taught us explicitly was the Our Father. And again, brothers and sisters, think of those first two words. On the natural plane, none of them are true. None of us pray Our alone. Think of on the natural plane. How many of you use the royal we at home? Right? Honey, we'd like some coffee down here, please. Right? You'd get it right in your lap, wouldn't you? Right? But as Christians, we are never alone. And I think the reason this prayer comes to us as it did is because Christ knew the number one trick of the enemy is to try to get us to think we're alone. The number one trick of Satan is to make you think you don't matter. That your actions don't really hurt anyone. That maybe no one really does understand you or get you or love you. It's one of the great tricks. But Jesus reminds us, no. At every moment, the baptized soul is related to every other Christian and saint, every divine person of heaven, that you pray our, because you are always on the Father's mind. He delights in you. He obsesses over you. That you are the reason He created this entire world. And then we see, millennia later, you're the reason He actually came to earth too. That the Son of God became like us. To reveal to us our true Father, right? On the natural level, most of our fathers are probably gone. But on the supernatural level, you and I can call the first person in the Trinity, Abba, Father. The person who spoke this entire cosmos into creation. We can call him Daddy, you know? That sense of familiarity that word conveys, Daddy. And by extension, of course, we Catholics are blessed to know explicitly that we don't belong to just... What? Well, this is a, this is a mean thing. I gave a talk at Greenville College, you know? Over, were they free, free Methodists? They invited me back, actually, just yesterday, so I didn't offend them too badly. But one of the girls in the audience says, you Catholics are always talking about Mary. It makes no sense. I said, it doesn't make sense. I said, excuse us for being against same-sex families. <laughs> but, I mean, we have a father. We need a mother, right? We, we need a mother. And Vatican II calls Mary the mother of our souls and the order of grace. And again, how does life work? It usually works with a mother and a father, right? And you who represent the church... Augustine has a whole section in this about Mother Church, about defending our mother, knowing our mother. And so it's not just an Our Father thing. We pray a Hail Mary as well. They go together. 
And again, that's the way life works. All right. Catechism. By embracing in his human heart the Father's love for men and women, Jesus loved them to the end. For greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. In suffering and death, his humanity became the free and perfect instrument of his divine love, which desires the salvation of all. Indeed, out of love for his Father and for men, whom the Father wants to save, Jesus freely accepted his passion and death. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Hence the sovereign freedom of God's Son as he went out to his death. So, our Christian faith began rooted in the people of Israel. The people of Israel were the first people ever to know that there's ultimately one God. Right? Ultimately one God. And notice how this God acted. Before Israel, the gods and goddesses of Greece and Rome and Mesopotamia, the gods and goddesses of the Orient, they were always on the side of the strong. Why'd you win the war? We offer the right sacrifices. Why'd you win the war? We offer the right prayers. Why was your harvest so bountiful this year? Well, Ceres, right? Not Siri, that's a later goddess, but Ceres, right? We get the word cereal. She blessed our bounty this year and whatnot. Whenever you ask, the gods and goddesses were always on the side of the strong, the powerful, the rich. About 4,000 years ago, something brand new happened. All of a sudden, God was on the side of the weak the oppressed, these Hebrew slaves in Egypt. And we had the story, what, two weeks ago, of Moses hearing that God's name, I am who am. I am the one who simply is. I come from no one. I depend on nothing. I simply exist. I don't come into being. I simply am. I am who am. Y-H-W-H, right? Yahweh. And Moses takes this powerful name and goes back into Egypt and God, by picking the weakest and the smallest tribe, sides on the side of the poor to show that it is his power doing this, not theirs. I mean, if the Greeks or Romans, they had a great army. There would have been no divine acknowledgement. But by picking these slaves, God sides for the first time in history, if you will, on the side of the oppressed. And then 2,000 years later, something totally new happens. God becomes the oppressed. God becomes the crucified. He becomes the slave. He's not just on our side anymore. He's now one of us. And Jesus Christ, if you notice in the Gospels, he's slowly opening up the Trinity because he doesn't want the Jews to walk away. He doesn't want them to think that Christianity is a matter of polytheism. He's slowly revealing his identity as the divine Son of God. And the Christian argument is it's ultimately on the cross as he lays down his life shows us what true love is. And again, think of our own lives, friends. Most of our loves started with grandiose gestures, didn't they? Right? We uh, always had our hair in place when we were courting. Right? Ladies, remember those days when your husband would always open the door for you? How long that last? Right? Maybe it's still going on. I hope so. Right? But think of how love works. It's usually grandiose gestures. It's usually out of perfection. I'm always looking nice. I always make sure I have my belt, you know, all these things. And eventually there comes a time where you start to relax. And then I imagine there's a day in your love in which you say, you know what, here's who I really am. I'm, I'm afraid of spiders. I don't know what, right? We let down our guard and we let people know our weaknesses. That's when true intimacy arises, Right? And then what happens? Well, we start taking each other for granted. We start living as a unit. We don't think of the other person as another anymore, but this is who I am, my extension. I don't make choices alone anymore. I check in with him or her. And that's exactly what the incarnation's doing. 
But then there comes that time in which you might be surprised that spending time in the hospital with your spouse, spending those last days in hospice with your spouse, you wouldn't trade those for any beach in the world. That true love isn't afraid of imperfection, of weakening, of death. That the truly loving person stands faithfully under the cross. And you and I will all have that moment. But that's what the Gospel of John is saying. That's what the Catechism is teaching here, 609. That there is no greater love than to be with another in that laying down of one's life. There is no greater love in accepting the intimacy and the vulnerability of our mortality. And that's how Jesus Christ opens up the Trinity for those around Him. You want to know who your Father is? I have come to show you. Who is He? He's a dependent, vulnerable, loving Father. And I'll show you what true love is. It's not just loving the nice, sweet, successful stuff. It's loving the stuff that you'd rather not have. And that's precisely what we're preparing for during Lent. And there's the cross. This is the new commandment. To love to the end. And this is how Jesus Christ manifests the Father's love. The Father's love, notice, that He's received, right? The Son is the perfect, perfect child who receives the Father. Everything He is, right, comes from the Father. True for us too, but we forget it. By loving one another, the disciples imitate the love of Jesus, which they themselves receive. Once Jesus says, as the Father has loved me, so I've loved you, abide in my love. And again, this is my commandment. You love one another as I love you. Alright? We've got just a couple of minutes. Again, John's Gospel. You can read these. John 17. If you haven't read John 17 in a while, take some quiet time. You get, to, you get to eavesdrop on the Trinity. It's great. Jesus is talking to His Father in the most intimate way in that high... It's called the High Priestly Prayer. I wanted to end this first talk with an acknowledgement of our sinfulness. All right. Um, if you haven't sinned, you're free to leave. All right. And we sometimes beat ourselves up. And we say, no, God can't love me. I'm too broken. God can't love me. My past is too checkered. Well, here's the trick. As good catechists, you know what you should know? God does not love you because you're lovable. God loves you because he is love. Now, you might want to put that in your own words to a four-year-old, right? Unlovable little... All right. But if God is love, he can have no other relationship with his creatures. If God is love, he can have no other reaction to us. And sometimes that love seems difficult. But again, think of your teenage child. You hate me. You make me home at 10 o'clock. No, I love you. That's why you're going to be home at 10 o'clock, right? I mean, God's laws, God's teachings, the church's mandates, these are signs of love. And we'll never be good evangelists until we see that. That one of the, um, how love gets to us is through commandments. It's not about keeping us down. It's about allowing us to flourish. But a lot of us think, well, the Father can't truly love me. Matthew 13, I think, changes Christianity. Matthew 13 says, look, there's wheat and there's weeds. And oftentimes in our zealous reversions to the faith, oftentimes in those moments when we want to be perfect, we think, I've got to get the sin out of here. And notice what Jesus says. He says, no, wait. Don't you do it, because chances are you're going to goof it up. Let me have that feel. And so let us end by thinking of the Father and our relationship and all of our sinful patterns by saying, you know what? If I go to work on my sins, if I turn away from God to do this myself, I'll goof it up, because that's not what it's about. 
Isn't it intriguing to think that God would rather have a world that's, yeah, scoofed up here and there, run by free creatures who can enter into love and relationship freely, than have a world that is perfect and pristine run by computers? Again, wouldn't most of your lives have gone easier if you put a chip in your child's head at birth that allowed her to say, yes, Mommy, I love you, Mommy, I will clean the room, Mommy? Then she wouldn't have been your child, right? The imperfections of our world, the sinfulness of our hearts, I don't think are the things that keep us away from God. I think what keeps us away from God is our indifference, our lack of zeal, our thinking we can do it on our own or have to do it on our own. It's not, it's not the warmth of our sins, it's the coldness of our hearts. And so when Jesus says in Matthew 13, look, let me just have you. I'll take care of things. What I need from you is not your perfection, I need your surrender. I need your offering yourself to me, Okay. So when we leave here, this first conference on the Father's love, I want us to leave here knowing that what it means to be an image and likeness of the Father is to be one made for surrender, made for one opening up to the other. And why don't we pray together, glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. We have a break until 10.20. Thank you.